Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. In just over a week's time, world leaders and climate negotiators will gather in Glasgow, Scotland for the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26. This is a critical moment in global efforts to tackle climate change. With this year's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change saying urgent action is required if global temperature rises are to be kept at 1.5 degrees Celsius. But as we approach the summit, there have been some worrying signs. With the COVID-19 pandemic still posing major risks and disrupting travel, attendance is challenging for leaders of smaller nations in particular, including those of the Pacific. Leaked documents in the host country, the United Kingdom, have revealed a split between Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak over the costs of zero-carbon economy. The Biden administration in the United States may have to abandon a $150 billion clean energy plan due to resistance from a senator in his own party. China is the world's largest source of total emissions, but it's unclear whether the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, will attend the conference in person. At the time of recording, Australia is still in deep debate and is perhaps edging towards a net zero by 2050 something that some have described as merely the ticket to entry to these kinds of negotiations. So as we approach COP26, there is very little certainty about the directions that discussions will take at that event. There is great uncertainty about the position of a number of countries, including Australia. And so today on the pod, we're joined by two of Australia's leading climate change and policy experts to discuss what's at stake and what we might hope to achieve through COP26. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and I am delighted to be joined once again today by my pod buddy, Anna Hunter. Hi, Anna Hi, Sharon. How are you? I'm Anna Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. It's part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. The Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. You can check out the degree programs and short courses that are available through Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au study. 
Sharon, in recent episodes, we did speak to two experts on the impacts of rising temperatures globally, particularly the impact of heat and particularly in the Australian context. How did you find that conversation? I, I found it really has resonated and continued to percolate in my brain as I consider what the future might look like. Yes. Uh, uh, to be completely honest, Anna Greta, I found that an incredibly confronting conversation. Now, I think we said immediately after that pod, how difficult it is to hear what the impacts will be. Now, we hear the discussions about a rise of 1.5 degrees or perhaps up to 3 degrees, and I think for most of us, we don't appreciate what impact that is going to have. But when we heard Simon and Sarah talking about the, the the impacts on human health, the impacts on the the ecology around us. It really is terrifying. But these these are conversations we really have to have. And so I thought that was an incredibly important part. Absolutely. And look, I think it helps to set the scene for today's discussion. So listeners, again, we apologise for our our remote recording uh, sound quality. It's not quite the same as when we're in the studio together. And we are hoping that at some point in the coming weeks or months that we may actually be able to record podcasts in person. Uh, We apologise for animal sounds and and the uh, the sounds of of our homes and uh, and our environment around us. I have to ask, Anna Greta, where are your chickens today? <laughs> I'm not near the chickens today, Sharon. I'm, I'm probably closer to, to a larger amount of uh, urban noise today. So yeah, there's no chickens at my end. There might be the odd dog. I think I'm quite attached you? to your chickens. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so today we have two extraordinary guests with us. Uh, we have uh, Professor Mark Howden. Mark is the Director for the Institute of Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University. He's Vice Chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on the, for Climate Change at the IPCC and a member of the ACT Climate Change Council. Mark's worked on climate variability, climate change, innovation and adoption issues for over 30 years. He's a major contributor to the IPCC since 1991 with roles in the second, third, fourth, fifth and now the sixth assessment reports. And he was share- he shared, of course, the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize with other IPCC participants and Al Gore. Welcome, Mark. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Anna Greta. It's great to have you with us. And beside Mark is Frank Diozzo. Frank is the Professor of Environmental Economics and Climate Change Economics at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, where he directs the Centre for Climate and Energy Policy. He's head of the energy part of the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions. He's the joint editor-in-chief of the journal Climate Policy and a lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change forthcoming assessment report and synthesis report. He's involved in a large number of policy research and advisory exercises, including as a senior advisor to Australia's Garno Climate Change Review and advisor to national governments, Australian state and territory governments. As an environmental economist, his research focuses on policy-relevant aspects of climate change, energy and broader issues of environment, development and economic reform. Great to have you with us, Frank. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, good morning. So, Mark Howden, can we start with you? Perhaps you might like to map out for us the the climate science. What does the latest research tell us about what's happening to the planet? I guess the latest is in the IPCC Working Group 1 report, which was released in August. And, And that showed that the human influence on climate was unequivocal. So it's no longer a matter of uncertainty. It's a matter of established fact that it was not just global temperatures that are being influenced by humans, but also extreme events. So it's the uh, things like the heat waves and cyclones which impact on us so severely. And that they painted out pictures of 
the different scenarios of emissions in the future and where they may lead us in terms of temperature and other factors. And those look pretty grim. At the moment, we're heading uh, for a fairly significant temperature rise. And uh, so something like around about three degrees. And to keep to the Paris Agreement goals, we have to head to less than two degrees or 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial. And that's going to be a significant challenge. Uh, I think importantly to note that these two forthcoming IPCC reports, one on impacts and adaptation and one on emission reduction, the one that Frank's on, and they're coming out in February and March, and they start to paint out the solutions, I guess, uh, whereas Working Group 1 essentially paints out the problem. I wonder, Mark, if you could just tell us what the best case scenario is and, and how much work would be required to achieve that from the IPCC report. Yeah, the, there's various scenarios that the IPCC report presents and the two low ones, the, the low and very low scenarios, uh, are consistent, roughly speaking, with the Paris Agreement goals. And uh, and so the very low one has us going to essentially net zero by 2050 and then below zero, uh, very substantially. And the two degrees one, the low scenario, has us going essentially net zero by 2070 and then below zero. So really importantly, um, both of those uh, show that net zero is not the end point of the changes that we need to make, but actually a midpoint of the changes. And uh, both of those require us to start having net reduction of uh, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And really importantly, both of those scenarios, as well as the other higher scenarios, still had us reaching 1.5 degrees in the 2030s. If we keep on a high emission scenario trajectory, we may actually exceed 1.5 degrees this decade. So there's there's not much time to waste. And, and that message of decadal scale response needed is actually mirrored in the carbon budget, which essentially shows that if we keep on emitting at current levels, uh, then we only have around about 10 years of emissions to go before we completely blow our carbon budget that's consistent with 1.5 degrees. Frank, in the, the discussions um, around the climate emergency that we're facing, we hear a lot about countries going through an energy transition. Can you talk us through what that energy transition means and how important it is in global efforts to fight climate change? Yeah, Sharon, that energy transition has, in fact, uh, got underway. It's no longer a theoretical uh, concept. And the good news against, you know, the ever-diminishing carbon budget uh, and, and all of those things is that it is now clear that, you know, taking carbon emissions out of the economy uh, is a lot more feasible in practice than we would have, uh, than it would have estimated uh, just five or ten years ago. And so uh, even though the global carbon budget is rapidly shrinking, the opportunity uh, to really turn the ship around have increased uh, massively. And really at the heart of the energy transition globally uh, is renewable energy. Used to be a very expensive option uh, for uh, creating energy relative to fossil fuels. And it is now uh, a very cost effective option. And so, uh, you know, very famously, International Energy Agency declared this year that, you know, solar is uh, solar uh, photovoltaic power is the cheapest form of energy the world has ever seen. And that's the fundamental game changer that allows us to globally decarbonize electricity supply systems, right? And so we will have. Uh, 
electricity that is that is emissions free or nearly emissions free and that in turn then allows us to electrify everything as we say uh, it as a as a sort of a shorthand uh, that means displacing fossil fuel use in uh, the majority of applications throughout the economy and so that includes industry that includes heating in homes and offices uh, and very importantly that includes transport as well uh, and uh, so the the electric car the electric truck uh, electrification of, of trains, electrification of even shipping, for example, via um, hydrogen and hydrogen-derived fuels that are produced using renewable energy is becoming possible and is becoming affordable as well. And so that's the fundamental transition that we see uh, that we're seeing get underway, uh, the displacement um, of most of uh, the global fossil fuel system with renewable energy and nuclear in some countries and places. I mean, there's there's often very little good news when we think about the challenges we're facing around climate change. But perhaps, you know, when you describe the affordability of energy, it seems that many countries and many communities that currently live in energy poverty, particularly in the global south, may have access to energy in ways that they didn't when we were using fossil fuels and it was more expensive. But Frank, when you, you talk about those efforts that are underway globally, which countries uh, are leading the way and and how are they doing it look uh, we're seeing that very rapid uptake of renewable energy uh, and electrification of aspects of our economic systems really throughout the world some countries are leading on on particular aspects of it uh norway is the global leader in terms of the deployment of electric cars for example and is providing everyone else with a benefit there in terms of creating that demand that then uh, or part of the demand that then uh, drives down production costs china is very very strong on deployment uh, of of electric cars as well that uh, that rapid uptake of wind and solar power is something we see really across the world the majority of energy sector investments these days the majority are in renewable energy rather than fossil fuels and that's a monumental change and very very important Importantly, we see that uptake right throughout uh, the developing world as well, and so so this is something that really we we did not, as as analysts and scientists in this area, we we did not expect to happen at quite this this pace because the expectation was that uh, renewable energy costs would decline, but uh, the mainstream of the analysis did not anticipate cost reductions uh, would happen quite as rapidly as they did, and so the assumption was always that relatively strong policy interventions would be needed pretty much everywhere in order to drive the adoption of zero emissions options, right? And then um, a sort of a realist assessment uh, would then say, well, we're going to see these kinds of strong policy instruments in some of the developed countries, but not across much of the developing world for quite some time to come. Uh, and so so that's that's really the, uh, the, the fundamental difference. If you think of India, for example, or an economy like India, where you still got a big task ahead uh, in terms of energy provision and in particular electrification in rural areas, which is, of course, 
skills, very highly developed, uh, you know, um, desirable, uh, and in fact essential from a from a human development point of view. Um, it enables all sorts of things: health, education, uh, economic progress. Um, yeah, you know, formally, you would have you you would have considered really only uh, constructing uh, an electricity transmission line and then running coal-fired electricity through it in in uh, a place that mines coal, like India. Uh, today, there's there's a there's a live consideration as to whether you simply electrify uh, outlying rural areas through standalone solar-powered systems with battery backup uh, for the evenings and mornings, and that is actually a um, a commercially or economically viable solution now. You know, and in many cases, this can actually be done more quickly than you would have been able to to expand a fossil fuel-fired grid. And so that's that's really very positive all around. It is great to hear some of the good news about the energy transition that's occurring globally. Let's turn our attention now to COP26. Uh, since coming into office, United States President Joe Biden has returned to the Paris Agreement and held his own climate summit early this year to try and galvanise world leaders around and ahead of COP26. Mark Howden, what concrete measures do you think the US president will be seeking at the COP26 conference coming up? And, and who are his allies in this? Yeah, so I think uh, the US will be looking for allies right across the board and uh, because there's a whole stack of geopolitics outside of climate change that come into play um, within any of these discussions. Uh, but historically, their allies have, have obviously been uh, the UK and, and European uh, nations who, who are actually already on track to similar or even more ambitious targets than the US is. And importantly, I think what he'll be looking for is uh, very significant increases in commitments from those countries that already haven't uh, made increased commitments. Um, so, for example, the UK has already stepped up its commitments to emission reduction. So, so I think the concrete outcomes from, from them will be you know, other countries pitching in to similar extents, you know, the 50 to 52% reductions uh, that the US is, is committed to. And I think they'll also be looking for essentially sharing the burden of uh, climate finance, so stepping up in terms of uh, that finance for particularly for developing countries and particularly for climate adaptation uh, that's been lagging for a while. And so, so I think there'll be a, a really significant pressure there. And as well, I think what we'll see is, is a, an increased building of various coalitions to uh, take on uh, climate change emission reductions in various uh, various ways. Uh, that would be business and governmental coalitions, uh, amongst others. And we're likely to see significant action there in terms of methane, so uh, turning our attention not just to carbon dioxide but also to methane and other gases. And so that would be also, I think, a concrete outcome they're looking for. And, Frank, what do we need to watch for in terms of the things that stand in the way of those outcomes being achieved at COP? And what stands in the way of the kinds of coalitions that Mark talks about being formed? Oh, lots can stand in the way. Uh, <laughs> and that's, you know, the, the key to it uh, is really some geopolitical rivalry uh, on, the, on the one hand in terms of the barriers. The other one is, of course, domestic politics. And uh, we're, we're so uh, very, very familiar with, with that aspect aspect of it is in Australia, of course, but, you know, it's a thing in many, many other countries as well. And so on the geopolitical rivalry 
the election of Biden, of course, changed the uh, the global uh, atmospherics and preconditions for climate policy quite fundamentally, because uh, you know you've you've, you've got the uh, still largest uh, economy and uh, uh, you know second largest uh, emitter of greenhouse gases suddenly on you know um, uh, completely switching tack from uh, uh, from obstructionism uh, and disengagement to being a very active player in favor of strong climate policy. So a great, great positive. But, you know, gone are the days where uh, the US and China addressed together and in unison. And so, you know, when you think back to 2014, 15, uh, there was in fact a, a US-China agreement on climate change that preceded the Paris Agreement and that, uh, you know, uh, one can reasonably guess in many ways made the Paris Agreement possible. Um, and so, uh, you know, born out of the, um, the, the, the drastic cooling of the, of the geopolitical situation in that regard, we haven't, we haven't got that anymore. And of course, you know, the, the, the domestic politics is always what, um, in, in the end, uh, either either makes or breaks uh, a country's uh, contribution to an international effort. And so, uh, I guess we we might want to talk a little bit about that in terms of uh, how pos- how Australia is positioning in the climate talks on international climate change policy generally. And you know, Australia is of course not not the only country where where the domestic political positions uh, influence what uh, what governments are prepared or aren't prepared to offer uh, on international cooperation. Frank, I think we'll come back after a very short break and delve into some of those domestic issues in more detail. As you say, these are absolutely critical and it would be good to tease out some of the the issues that we're grappling with here in Australia. So listeners, please don't go away. We will return with Frank Yotso and Mark Howden in just a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world... Democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. We've talked a lot on the pod recently about how we value different elements of our lives and society, and we've had a series of guests question and critique the importance we place on measures like gross domestic product. As we know, climate change is an issue that affects all our lives in many, many different ways. And yet in Australia's political space, at times, it's been tuned to a very narrow economic focus. And just before the break, uh, Frank was talking about the the challenges that we face in terms of the domestic politics getting in the way of some of the outcomes that we need to achieve globally. 
Frank and Mark, you've both worked on climate change for many years. Frank, can I ask you, do you think that the economic argument is the way to achieve progress or do we need to make climate change a, a broader discussion? Do we need different types of strategies for different audiences and perhaps moving away from the economic argument as the primary argument? Oh, look, I think Sharon, the, the economic argument will always be at the centre of, of the big debates uh, that actually affect the economy and future prosperity. I don't think there's any getting away from it. Um the problem, of course, with uh, with with the so-called economic debate, as it often plays out in politics or in Australian politics, in any case, is that uh, very shallow, uh, superficial uh, economic arguments uh, get instruments instrumentalized, often as a pseudo argument against change, and so. Tradition, very unfortunately, over the last decade or so in Australia has become to contrast um, uh, some sort of hypothetical horror scenario of um, Australia taking very strong and very costly action to constrain emissions while no other country does anything much, uh, right? And that's, of course, uh, not a good outcome uh, for uh, for Australia's economy um, versus some sort of, uh, you know, nirvana outcome where where every a uh, worker in a fossil fuel industry miraculously finds um, a, a high-paying job in the renewable energy industry, and so so that's not real economic analysis. That is that is more political rhetoric uh, than than anything else. But you know, at at the core, there's a question uh, about uh, Australia's place in a in a zero carbon world, right? We know that, uh, you know, uh, unless things go horribly wrong, uh, the world economy will decarbonize, right? Um, and then, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, we, we will have uh, some, some extent of, uh, of, of uh, positive response to the, to the climate challenge in that way, right? And the question then becomes, what's, uh, how can the Australian economy thrive uh, in in that context right that's the question to ask and increasingly we understand that Australia actually has wonderful opportunities in this um, because we're essentially not constrained in any practical or economic sense uh, in terms of the availability of uh, of affordable clean energy wind and solar in particular right geographic preconditions for that um, are as good as they are in, in any of the best places in the world. Um, and Australia could be the place where uh, a not insignificant share uh, of future uh, large-scale zero-emissions energy industries have their home, right? And that's not just the production of hydrogen, which everyone's talking about, but that could extend uh, to the production of energy-intensive industrial commodities, including steel, produced uh, in Australia to an extent uh, using, uh, using clean energy. And that's a very promising uh, economic future. So I've just got a, a slightly different view on that one. And, um, and I, I sort of distinguish um, the, the economic arguments, which do play out very strongly in the policy and politics of this, but I think if you actually look at the average Australian and, and the average Australian does want more action on climate change, so up to 90% of Australians want more action on climate change, and they're not really driven by those, those economic arguments in the broad. I think that they're actually driven by a much broader concern about climate change and the consequences this will have in the long term for Australia. And, uh, and part of that is the economics, but part of it isn't. It's part of 
you know, what will happen to our reef, what will happen to our, our livelihoods, what will happen to our biodiversity, and etc. And so, so that I think there is a distinction, I think, between the public concern, um, which is much broader, and the politics of this, which is much narrower and focuses on that economics and investment side of things. And perhaps it also reflects a difference between the politics and the economic arguments often being very focused on the short term, whereas the uh, public discourse, I think, does focus a lot more on the long term and the intergenerational side of things. And so, for example, the uh, climate school kids uh, and and youth uh, activism in terms of climate change um, is not fundamentally driven by the economics. It's actually driven by those broader concerns. Mark, the the Australian government or some of the debates with within the coalition at the moment are very much focused on economics. Um, although, as you point out, many many people within the public, and particularly younger people, are concerned about a much broader range of issues. But I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what is likely to play out for Australia at, at COP. As we mentioned in the introduction, there's there's debate in Australia, there's been some discussion around net zero emissions by 2050, but it's not clear that that, that will even be agreed domestically. Mark, what's at stake for Australia at COP26, not just in terms of the, the environmental outcomes, but also diplomatically? I think there's a lot at stake, which is in relation to Australia's reputation as a, as a fair dealer as as a uh, an effective partner uh, in in terms of international activities uh, and in sort of our our sort of status as a a legitimate mid power and uh, so I actually think there's there's quite a bit sitting in there and and the fact that we may well go to Glasgow or the PM may go to Glasgow with without a net zero you know firm net zero commitment uh, and without a 2030 commitment that's different from our existing one, because the, the talked about projection is not a commitment; it's just a uh, a wish, as it were. And and so so I actually think that there will be a lot of pressure placed on the prime minister um, over there and uh, by other countries and and also by big business. And uh, and that will probably be a very awkward and difficult place for the prime minister to be as a consequence. But coming out of that, if that does play out in that way and if Australia doesn't respond, I think there could actually be some you know, quite concrete uh, um, implications for Australia. So, so, for example, the discussions about carbon border adjustment mechanisms um, could come into play much more firmly because uh, other countries see Australia increasingly as a free rider uh, in terms of those international agreements. Um, similarly, we've made a significant unfriend uh, with the French over in the EU, and there's a series of consequences uh, in terms of Australia's uh, or, you know, arrangements with the EU, including the, the free trade deal, uh, which may um, suffer as a consequence. So you've got a combination of things which could pile up. And similarly, across the globe, I think the preparedness to engage with Australia as a, a nation that uh, does the right thing um, could actually be damaged uh, if we don't step up. Mark, you've just described the 2050 target and the challenges we seem to be having in agreeing in Australia to a net zero target by 2050, but you also touched earlier on the concept of a carbon budget. How important is it for us in Australia and for the world generally to be thinking about a 2030 target more than the 2050? Uh, the 2030 target is actually the main game at this point in time. And 
And if you actually look at the Paris Agreement, uh, it's the the Paris Agreement goals in Article Two is actually about uh, the temperature targets. It's keeping temperatures well below two degrees, and if possible, down to one point five. Um, the emission reductions are a means to that end. So, so all of this discourse, which actually talks about net zero, almost treats net zero as the thing we're aiming for. Well, no, it's not. What we're actually aiming for is to keep temperatures down so we avoid dangerous anthropogenic um, impact on climate. That's what's under the UN Framework Convention. And and so we need to start reframing uh, this debate away from net zero because, as I say, that's just a means, and uh, towards the temperature goals and what's needed to achieve those temperature goals. And, and that means very, very substantial emission reductions by 2030 and earlier, uh, because if we don't do that, we, as I mentioned before, we quickly blow our carbon budget that's consistent with 1.5 degrees. So if we keep on emitting at current rates, and and it looks like we will, you know, the bounce back from COVID will probably take us to uh, levels of carbon dioxide emissions very similar to or maybe exceeding the pre-COVID levels, which is around 42 billion tonnes a year then um, we, we chew up a big slice of that remaining carbon budget every year um, that we don't actually start to head downwards in terms of carbon dioxide. So it's all about temperature. And uh, listeners, I, I would encourage you, again, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the, to the podcast we did on heat, uh, that really is, the, that's, that's the centre of the, the game here, is can we keep temperatures in a habitable zone for biological life? So, so but if you actually look at the Paris Agreement, essentially it's it's the, the headline goal is to strengthen the global response to climate change, and the three components under that are keeping temperatures down, um, uh, adapting to climate change, um, and adequate finance flows to ensure that there's a pathway for all countries to head to a low greenhouse gas emissions and a climate-adapted future. So if we look beyond the machinations of the net zero target, Australia's climate policy has chopped and changed significantly over the past decade and a half. Um, A major part of our government at the moment's approach has been a technology investment roadmap. Frank, how effective is the technology roadmap likely to be in bringing down Australia's emissions in the timeframe that Mark Howden's referring to? Uh, Well, look, I mean, the so-called technology roadmap is essentially a list uh, of a few technologies that are earmarked for government support of one form or another. Um, And they're all things that are useful part of the picture. They're all things where, you know, further R&D and deployment uh, will be useful in the coming decade or two, right? But they're not the main game. And the main game is deployment of technologies that are available and that are increasingly affordable as well, right? And so, um, you know, Australian climate policy for for quite a number of years now has uh, at the federal level level, uh, almost entirely ducked the question uh, of of deployment um, for all the known reasons of you know um, political fights over this and 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 the desire to protect established structures in particular in the fossil fuel based industries etc cetera, etc cetera. and so if we're going to see uh, a a bona fide 
roadmap and action towards uh, towards significant uh, steps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, right? Then uh, you know the technology roadmap will become a very minor part of the overall picture, and the overall picture will need to consist of providing. Uh, incentives uh, and and also regulatory mechanisms uh, and also uh, government investment right throughout the economy um, to really grab all of those low-hanging fruit um, for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and for putting a whole ship uh, in, into a low-carbon direction in medium to longer term. We've mapped out throughout this discussion some of the, the challenges environmental, economic and diplomatic that we'll be facing all leaders at COP26. I'm interested to hear from from each of you how confident you are that we will see progress and indeed major progress at COP26. Mark, can we begin with you? Are you confident that we might see some positive shifts coming out of, of this forum that we're about to embark on? Oh, look, I think we will see positives. We'll see more countries stepping up in terms of emission reduction commitments. And I think we'll see uh, increased uh, finance flows. So there'll be commitments to uh, finance and adaptation. Uh, a couple of the areas where we may not see so much progress would be the global uh, carbon market mechanisms, uh, which is under Article 6. Uh, and, and there's uh, particularly entrenched positions on that, uh, which relate to uh, the integrity and uh, transparency and accountability of that system. So, so this is where we can essentially do carbon uh, trading across national borders, and uh, and so I think that would be a, um, a very useful step in terms of uh, getting uh, some global action. Uh, but I don't think that will happen. The uh, the other aspects of that include whether there's likely to be significant step up in terms of the adaptation agenda. And I think what we'll see is is increased pressure to uh, report on adaptation actions uh, from uh, different countries to the next COP. And and so that will, I think, be uh, an important step up because at the moment the adaptation side of the picture gets uh, ignored because so much of the attention is being paid on the emission reduction. And Frank, how what what is your thinking advance of in advance of COP? Are, are you confident that we will see some positive changes, and and what are the challenges likely to be? Yeah, I agree with Mark's assessment there uh, completely. Um, this is not one of these negotiation sessions uh, where it's a make or break question as to whether a particular agreement gets signed or a particular issue will be resolved or not. Right? It's it's more uh, the kind of meeting where leaders get together uh, to announce greater national ambition. That's the main point of it, actually, right? Uh, and where nations reassure each other uh, that the series about implementing the the goals that were agreed uh, in 2015 in Paris, right? But that's the main goal and the main effect of it uh, is on on the domestic politics of it, you know. And so, you know, all of the uh, the tectonic shifts potentially that we're seeing um, within the Australian government at the moment, with all the difficulties that that uh, that that creates, right? Um, those shifts would very likely not have happened, not this year anyway. Uh, without COP looming as a as a marker on on the road, uh, where where nations need to stand up and say, you know, this is how we're going about uh, the the pledge that we sign 
end uh, six years ago. So that's that's the main purpose. And, you know, looking ahead, there's the global stock take uh, of how we're actually going with the implementation of the Paris Agreement. There'll be some substance in that in terms of the, the actual UN-led taking stock uh, of, of where we're at, uh, where things are going well in terms of reducing emissions uh, and where things are not going well and where more action is needed, including at the individual national level. So, uh, you know, in a sense, Glasgow uh, kick, kicks off uh, that kind of process. Mark and Frank, this is a conversation that we could continue for many hours, I think, and and a conversation that we probably should continue for many hours at least, but we will need to draw this part of the conversation to a close. We normally like to close by asking our fabulous guests for their main piece of advice. And as we close this conversation and we think about some of the debates that are happening within Australia, can I perhaps ask you each for the one piece of advice that you would give and probably do regularly give to policymakers and leaders in Australia as we go into COP26? Frank, perhaps we could start with you. Oh, look, um, that's, of course, a wonderful opportunity if you were asked for that kind of broad-ranging advice uh, to to someone in a, in a position of policy influence. Um, the big picture advice I would give is make sure you don't get stuck in the past uh, with the analysis that you look at um, to underpin your policy decisions. Um, be aware that this is a rapidly changing uh, environment in terms of the technological and economic opportunities uh, let us let us not uh, fall behind on this and be aware that this is one of the defining global challenges that our country uh, needs to uh, actively be part of of a solution that's that's what i would say and mark um, thanks sharon i guess i would say listen to the science the science is incredibly clear now in terms of the need for action to avoid the unwanted climate changes that would be really concerning for Australia. I think listen to the public who overwhelmingly want more action on climate change. I think it's really important for governments to be forward-looking, to be strategic and to be proactive in terms of responses to climate change on both the emission reduction and adaptation side and really importantly to take a national interest perspective rather than a more partisan or sectoral perspective. I think they are amazing pieces of advice that I do hope our political leaders take heed of as we go into COP26. Frank Yotso and Mark Howden, thank you both so much for joining us today. This has been such an important conversation, but I think also a very helpful conversation for our listeners in terms of making sense of what it is that's at stake at COP26, what those discussions are going to be around and what we can hope to see going forward. So thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you, Anna Greta, and thank you, Sharon. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Anna Greta. And listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode today and on every episode. As you know, we love to hear from you, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum or via email on podcast at policyforum.net. Probably the easiest way to stay in touch with us is through our Facebook group. You can just top, type Policy Forum into the search bar and you will find us there.
We would love you to subscribe and to leave a review on whatever platform you normally pod with. We read them and we take them seriously and we love to hear from you. So do leave us a review. And for anyone who's interested in hearing more, the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, together with King's College London, have been collaborating on a short podcast series called COP26, We Got This. You can find that on Acast and on Spotify, and we'll also leave a link in our show notes. That's a fantastic podcast series, so do have a listen. Now, sadly, my pod buddy, Anna Greta Hunter, has just dropped out. This is one of the great joys of recording remotely that we keep talking about. So Anna Greta's internet has either let her down or she's gone to feed her chickens. I'm not sure which, but we won't be having our usual chat at the end of this podcast. We will be back next week, of course. From me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.